John 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And Jesus said to them, I am he, and they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. May God bless to our hearing, the reading, and now the preaching of his word. Amen. What difference does one life make? You have one life. What difference will you make with it? As I read this week's passage, it was Caiaphas' words that one man should die for the people that kept ringing in my ears. He wanted to give Jesus' life significance by using it for his own purposes. And that will never work. Only God's purposes can make a life significant. This was true for Jesus in a rather obviously unique way. But as I read through the passage this week, I noticed other examples that in ways big and small, one person's life for God's purposes can have great significance. Start with the Apostle John, the author of this gospel. It's reasonable to assume that by the time he wrote, he'd read at least one of the other Gospels. But in obedience to the Holy Spirit, he wrote another one. How significant can it be for the fourth person to write on a particular subject? As it turns out, very significant. All four Gospel writers speak truthfully about the life of Jesus But as we've seen all throughout John, the different writing styles and emphases uncover rich theological truths. They teach us in different ways from one another. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to together as the synoptics because their similar structure and style allows us to easily compare them by just placing the text side by side and reading straight across. But even so with them, the difference in audiences provoke differences in approach and unique contributions to the gospel narrative. But from John's opening, in the beginning, we understand that his gospel stands somewhat alone 
Not entirely alone, of course. It's the same truthful story about the same Jesus. Many of the recorded events, like this one in the Garden of Gethsemane, are also in the Synoptic Gospels. But the themes, the perspective that's unique to John has had a significant impact on the church and the world. Many publishers produce the Gospel of John all by itself. We have copies on the back table and in the hall to be used as their own kind of gospel tract. How many people has God gathered to himself simply through the Spirit working in their reading of the Gospel of John? Now, those who are determined to find fault and contradictions between four gospel accounts will always do so. But for those who approach these gospels in humility and with faith, wondrous details emerge from the unique perspectives. The events leading to Jesus' passion happen quickly. Because he's arrested on a Thursday evening, there's a lot to do in a short amount of time if the Jews want to have him dead and buried before the Sabbath arrives. After all, they've got two sham trials they've got to fit in, a Jewish one and a Roman one. Jesus will first be taken to Annas, then to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And once convicted, then he'll be sent to Pilate and Herod, and then finally back to Pilate for sentencing. The departure for which Jesus has been preparing his disciples starts here, with Jesus' betrayal and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the synoptics, These accounts of the garden focus on Jesus' personal agony. It's here where he asks the disciples to pray with him and is disappointed that they cannot stay awake. It's here that he prays that if it's possible for this cup to pass him by, that it would. And John's account doesn't conflict with any of this. But he puts a different element of the event at the forefront. Jesus control of the situation. A person reading only the other gospel accounts could mistakenly, it would be their mistake, but it could happen, they could come away from the synoptic gospels and the Garden of Gethsemane concluding that Jesus is a victim of circumstances. He's betrayed by a close friend who sells him out to the authorities. They arrest him, hand him over to a rigged trial and convict him. And put him to death. Poor Jesus. The whole situation just spiraled out of control. But that's not what happened at all. And John uses his unique account and perspective to make sure we see it. Jesus didn't hide from the authorities. He didn't deny his identity. John makes clear in verse 4 that Jesus knew all along what would happen to him. And still he stepped forward to offer himself to the arresting party. Verse 11, he was an active participant in drinking the cup that his father had given him. Another pastor writes, make no mistake, Jesus is not a martyr, but a voluntary sacrifice. He offers up his life in obedience to his father. And so 2,000 years later, we can read John's account of these events And take renewed comfort in that control. Under even the darkest and most dreadful of circumstances, Jesus trusted his father and committed himself to the work of obedience. 
And the collection of gospel accounts shows us that both of these can be true. Agony over the personal cost of this obedience and a complete commitment to it anyway. These went together in Jesus' life and his experience in the garden, and so they can at times still go together in our lives. The scene in John's gospel helps me, and I hope it helps you. It relieves the guilt of not wanting the agony of cross-bearing while being fully committed to it. John, the author of the fourth gospel, contributed something of significance. His writings were not the only significant thing he did with his life, clearly. But in obedience to God and in honor to God, he wrote. And what one man wrote made an impact. Of course, John's impact may seem too big for us to relate to. We're grateful for him, but we don't look at our lives and expect the same generational and kingdom magnitude as a man who wrote one of the Gospels. And yet, there's another example from this passage. Look at the first two verses. Jesus went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. This brook, Kidron, is just west of the Mount of Olives. And between the two are slopes. And this one had an olive grove. And based on the way it's described, there was some kind of walled garden, some kind of enclosure in the grove. Gethsemane means oil press. So there was one in it or right nearby. I tell you all this because this property, this olive grove, this walled garden. It belonged to someone. They came here frequently enough that Judas knew to bring the authorities here to find Jesus and the disciples. And that Jesus and his disciples were here so regularly means that they were invited. Whatever wealthy person owned this space, they were generous enough to set aside this private place for Jesus and his disciples. One person's generosity can be very impactful. Daphne and I have been on the receiving end of this kind of generosity many times. In God's kind providence, many have generously given us time in their houses at the lake or the beach or the mountains, times away for respite that we otherwise couldn't have afforded, times that have done our soul good from a simple act of generosity. My friend Bill named his lake house Lark Haven because a haven is a place of refuge, a place of safety and security, and that's what this garden was for Jesus and the disciples. This was the place where they could get away from the crowds, Here, he would meet with them. He would teach them. He would pray with them. He would pray for them. Here, they could have some quiet fellowship. Why? Because someone let them. Because one specific someone 
a landowner whose name is lost to history. One someone decided to honor God. And the result was a life of significance. Kidron is a fitting spot for such a significant moment. Just a couple of weeks ago in this service in 1 Kings 15, Jake read about King Asa. And his mother had set up an idolatrous image for the pagan god Asherah. Asa, one man who decided to honor God with his life, did something of significance. He removed her from her royal position, his own mother. And he cut down the idolatrous image. And he burned it. Here, at the brook of Kidron. Now, it's easy to dismiss that and think, yeah, he's just one man, but he was a king. A king can do anything he wants. That's kind of my point. Israel had a lot of wicked kings who did what they wanted. Nobody was going to stop them. They used their lives to make the wrong kind of difference, and their lives were ultimately insignificant, even though they were kings. Asa chose to obey God. Significant generational impact was the result. Josiah would be king generations later. Josiah, the great reformer who saw and learned of the great evil of Israel and wanted to put it to an end and come back to follow God. Josiah, who inherited in the temple itself vessels that had been made for Baal and Asherah, brought in by previous kings and priests. Josiah, just one Man, a king, but just one man against a host of unfaithful and rebellious leaders in Israel's history. And what did he decide to do? He decided to honor God. He had the vessels removed from the temple. And he had them burned. And where did he bring them? Here. The fields of Kidron. One person can make a difference. Generational impact. Of course, it cuts both ways, can it? Judas was also just one man. What he did was bad, but surely his life was also significant, right? We still read about him and think about him today. He led this large contingent of men to find and arrest Jesus. He planted that betraying kiss on Jesus' cheek. We might not like what he did, but surely what he did mattered. Surely he was significant. During feasts like Passover, the Romans would garrison extra troops near Jerusalem. The additional manpower was needed given the size of the crowds. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, would come. But there was another reason why they wanted so many Roman soldiers nearby. Rome was always alert to any possibility of rebellion against their authority. And the religious feasts had a way of stoking Jews' patriotic feelings, their resentment for Roman rule. And this increased the risk of insurrection. When the Jewish authorities then came and asked for soldiers to accompany them to carry out the arrest of Jesus, this potential rebel leader, They were eager to come along. Led by Judas, 
away from the crowds of Jerusalem, these Jewish and Roman authorities make their way to the private garden of Gethsemane. What an ironic scene is verse 3. One scholar writes, torches and lanterns to search for the light of the world. Swords and cudgels to subdue the prince of peace. This was a cruel insult. It proved how thoroughly his mission had been misinterpreted. You see, it seems like acts of significance to gather this small army to come and capture Jesus. But it was utterly pointless. You didn't need lanterns to find the light of the world. He would step forward and reveal himself. You didn't need weapons to take him into captivity. He would lay down his life, what seemed to be so significant, amounted to nothing. Humanly speaking, there were many one persons who could have put a stop to this. They could have honored God and done something of real significance. Annas is no longer officially the high priest. Rome has deposed him, but he's a man with real influence among the Jews. Or Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who had been made high priest by Rome. Or Pilate, one word from these men and Jesus goes free. Any one of them could have decided to use their lives for fruitful, God-honoring purposes. The record of the significance of their lives could have been something very different. And so too for Judas. It's a large crowd that comes for him, but it's one man, Judas, who leads them to Gethsemane. The synoptics record that kiss, the prearranged signal with which he identified Jesus to the authorities. This was how Judas decided to use his life. This was the significance that he sought, not in honoring God, but in betraying him. And that's why in the end, it's no surprise to learn that what Judas did was not very significant at all. John, emphasizing Jesus' control of the situation, totally omits Judas' kiss from the narrative. What he includes is Jesus' conversation with the authorities in verses 4 through 8. What was the lasting significance of Judas' purposeful act? His life, his purpose, what was going to make him someone was in this moment of this kiss. And what was the lasting significance? Nothing. Because Jesus openly revealed his identity to the authorities. It wasn't even necessary. Jesus says to the authorities twice, I am he. He's not a martyr. He's a voluntary sacrifice. This is his act of obedience to the Father. Judas had been given over to Satan, and I don't think that's insignificant here. Because Satan does not love, and Satan offers no real significance to those who obey them. But he says he does. Satan tries to deceive people into thinking that what they do will matter. Go back to the garden. 
Satan says to Adam and Eve that God is holding something back, that he is hiding from them, that they could be more than they are if they would just listen to him. Kids, you remember the white witch in the Chronicles of Narnia? This is what she does with Edmund, isn't it? She convinces him that Aslan is the one holding something back. And that if he wants to be significant, he's got to strike out on his own. He's got to be his own man. He's got to follow her lead. Satan wants to convince us that real greatness and real significance is found apart from God. But Satan's purposes... What Satan is trying to accomplish ultimately amounts to nothing. Satan's plans are a disaster. He thought the cross was his victory. And it was his ultimate and everlasting defeat. And because Satan's plans amount to nothing, those who participate in them ultimately amount to nothing as well. They receive nothing in return. He offers you the world. And he delivers nothing. Contrast this with Jesus. Jesus demonstrates both that all of his people are important to him. And that each one individually is important. He prayed to his father of those whom you gave me I lost not One, kids, it's the opposite of what Satan is trying to convince us. Satan tries to convince us that God may love others, but not you. You don't matter to him. You cannot be significant in his plans. And I tell you, any one of these disciples could have struggled with the same feelings. They're here in this garden. Jesus is so important. So much that matters is happening. And so why would God care about them? Why would they have a significant role to play? Why would I matter to him at all? But look at how Jesus takes control of the situation and how when he does, he cares about protecting every one of them. He asks the authorities the same question twice, not because he's forgetful, but because he makes them say the answer out loud twice. He makes them say out loud twice exactly what their orders are. They have orders to arrest him and him alone. And since they found him and he has given himself over to them, they can take him and him alone. He says, so if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus knew what would become clear to us in the next few chapters of observing the disciples. They weren't ready. They weren't ready yet to endure arrest and imprisonment for the sake of Christ. Until the resurrection, their faith was not up to the task. And Jesus knew this. And because he cared for each one of them, he protected each one of them. He would go and they would remain free. And when Satan lies to us about God's love, I hope we remember this scene. The father gives his only son so that each 
one who believes in him will have eternal life. And the son, the perfect righteous one, did not lose one that he was given. He leaves the 99 to bring back the one. The safety that he provides the disciples here is symbolic of what he provides spiritually. It's what one man calls the first step in securing the eternal reality. Our lives can't have the same kind of significance as Jesus. And because of his life, our lives don't have to. But a life that is lived in obedience to God and for his honor is a significant life. When we fail to live for his glory, what we do just won't amount to much. Look at what Peter does next. Jesus provided his disciples with safety. Peter, instead of accepting Christ's work for him, decides he's going to do something significant for the kingdom of God. Except really for Peter's own glory. This isn't Jesus' plan. This is Peter's plan. He takes out his dagger and he strikes the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. As you can imagine, the commentaries are not impressed with Peter's effort. Here's a couple of my favorites. One writes... The blow was clumsy, and the tactic as pointless as Peter's misunderstanding was total. And here's another one. Peter's bravery is not only useless, it's a denial of the work to which Jesus just committed himself. Remember, the focus in John's account is on Jesus' control of the situation. The struggle of spirit in Gethsemane, while very real, will not diminish his willing obedience to the Father. He is determined to lay down his life for the sheep, and no self-manufactured effort at significance is going to stop him, not even Peter's. The charge that will be brought against Jesus at trial is insurrection against the Roman government. He's trying to establish a kingdom for himself. Peter is borderline guilty of that here. But Jesus willingly hands himself over to the authorities. Jesus rebukes Peter's attack and tells him to put down his sword. Everything Jesus does proves the innocence he will be denied at trial. And Jesus will say to Pilate in just a few pages, my kingdom is not of this world. And significance in his kingdom does not come on the world's terms. Peter's life will be filled with significance in his service to Christ. But in this moment, when Peter decided that his purposes are more important to God's, his great effort, his brave act in defense of Jesus amounted to nothing. Nothing. Jesus heals Malchus' ear. Jesus is arrested anyway. And everybody goes on as if this never happened because it's utterly insignificant. Significance cannot be found apart from obedience to the will of God. When we use our lives to serve his purposes, for his honor and glory, they will have great significance. 
And when we set ourselves up in opposition to the honor of God, they will not. Some will fight God's purposes with all their might. Annas, Caiaphas come to mind. They end up serving God's purposes against their will. They end up being participating in accomplishing exactly the opposite of what they wanted. Everything they did ultimately works against their purposes. Remember the Jewish authorities, all they wanted from Jesus was for him to get off the stage and not to be a big deal and people to stop talking about Jesus. And that's why they arrested and convicted and had him killed. And how'd that work for him? Here we are. It doesn't work. All of this grandstanding For their purposes rather than God's, it's absolutely insignificant. Others, like Peter in this moment, claim to be serving God. They might think they're serving God, but they're trying to do it by aligning God's will to their own will. Aligning God's ways to their ways. I'll make God fit into my plans, and that's how I'll honor him. When we do this, the result is the opposite of significant. As I see what Peter does here, I'm reminded of Shakespeare's greatest punchline. Because those who live lives working against the honor of God or thinking that they will bring honor to God by their own ways and their own terms, their lives are but a walking shadow a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. What Jesus did for us, the one who gave his life for the many, is not something we can or have to do for ourselves. But Every one of us, in obedience to him and for his glory, can live lives of great significance. And it won't seem to you like the kind of difference made by the apostles, John or Peter. It won't seem to you like the difference made by King Asa or Josiah. But it is significant in God's economy. It's like the kind of difference that a man made, a man we don't even know, when he gave his garden and his oil press and his place of respite to the Lord and his disciples. The man of Gethsemane was the one uniquely positioned by God for that significance to offer Jesus and his disciples loving service. Look at your life. Think carefully about how God has positioned you and what he has positioned you and only you to do. You alone, men, are the husband of that wife. You alone. You are the parents of that child, parents. You are the friend, the brother, or the sister Or the child to the person who needs you to come alongside and to love and to comfort and to show compassion and mercy and grace. You are the servant that the church needs for its ministry. 
You are the light of Christ in the dark places of your school or your business or your HOA. It doesn't seem like much to you, but no one else can do it. For God has placed you and you alone in that place. And when you honor him in that place, your life is significant. Satan wants you to think all these things are so small they don't matter. That your contribution is of no significance at all. But this morning we see otherwise. We see that if we glorify God with our lives in the places he's uniquely placed us, there will be significance. There will be generational impact. Make God's purposes, make God's glory the focus of your life, and you will be significant. And what you do will matter to the glory of God alone. Amen. Let's pray.